Mr. Sean Atwood, you're finally back. We're going to do part two of your life story. The first part was absolutely incredible, jaw-dropping, everything. Your video's already got a million views for part one. And I think we left off where you told the story of how you were making, stacking millions of dollars in the stock market, and you had an ecstasy empire in Arizona, Tempe, Arizona, all kinds of crazy shit was going on. You finally got busted, went to jail or prison, and I think we left off with the story of the roaches, and you met a guy named Two Tonys. So we left off when you were in prison. I know we missed a lot of really interesting stories and from inside prison, the people you met, and then from when you actually got out and what happened after you got out. So where where can we start? Well... If we didn't do the Xena transgender story, that would be the good, the best one to start with. Okay. So Xena was a six and a half foot charismatic transgender prisoner. Looked long hair, you know, um, kind of like skinny, but like bum coming out, you know, going around like a woman on the yard. And I made friends with Xena and what I didn't know when I made friends with Zena was that Zena had something, suffered something completely horrific when she first came in. I'll say she because that's what the trans, they find it disrespectful to say he. Yeah. So Zena came in decades before me and she clicked up with the AB, the Aryan Brotherhood. She was. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the. Must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. was working out, she was big, and they had her collecting debts. Now, with these gangs, it's blood in, blood out. They use people up and they brutalize them. And in Zena's case, I asked her what happened. She said, the first time was a gang rape. They came. They beat me until I was unconscious. Raped me while I was unconscious. And shoved things inside my body. I said... How do you know that they were raping you if you were unconscious? She said, when I went to the toilet after, I could tell by what came out. Oh. I said, what did they stick inside your body? A broomstick. I said, well, what did you do after being raped? She said, she got moved to another yard, but the same thing happened. They beat her up, used her as a prostitute, a punk. Mm. More, more gang rapings, and and she sounds like a big person, right? Yeah, she was six and a half foot. I've seen them. It does, big guys come in prison, full of bravado, and the gangs get on them like a pack of wolves. There's nothing they could do when someone's outnumbered. It's not like in the movies where Rambo just kicks ass and everyone goes down. Yeah, the gangs. They run the place. They decide who lives and dies. So Zena said 
she sat in the cell waiting for the scars to go away. She got moved, but the same thing happened. And we were writing a blog to raise awareness of prison rape. So I said, you know, does this happen to young people who come in? And she said, yeah, most of the young people, but it can happen to anyone. Big, bad dudes, skinny, even the ugliest people in the world. People who come to prison who aren't street smart and don't understand the mentality of ghetto life, they get preyed on the most. I said, well, how did you stop it? She said that she started fighting back. She won the fight. And she told him she didn't care if she lived or died. And that's how she stopped it. But that's understatement. Zena was studying anatomy at the time and she came with an idea. And the next two times the gang came to rape Zena, the first member of the gang to put his hand on Zena, Zena plucked his eyeball out so it was dangling from the optic nerve. So Zena did that on two separate occasions and was classified as extremely dangerous because when I heard this, I thought that's not even possible. But when I got out, I joined a dojo and they teach us in karate. It's called bird beak strike. where you just pull someone's eyeball out like that. So when the eyeball comes out, it's dangling from the optic nerve. Mm. It doesn't just go back in the eye and behave normally. The fluid cushioning the brain can leak through it and you can die. Your eye might end up looking the wrong way. You could be blinded. So after doing that twice, the gang left Zena alone, but they moved on to some of the other more vulnerable prisoners, some of Zena's friends, actually. One was gang-raped, and they held him down, and they took a light bulb and shoved it in his backside and made bets on who could smash it first, and that prisoner committed suicide afterwards. Another one was gang-raped. They held him down, cut his head off with a shovel, and when the shovel was finally off... They picked the head up and they positioned it in an area of the prison where the rival gangs would see it to make the point that they were the most violent and ruthless out of all the gangs. And that was the Aryan Brotherhood prison gang. Now, another thing Zena told me was, you know, people think, you know, how can this happen? All this man on man rape, um, you know, the guards would protect the prisoners, the, the culprits would be brought to justice. Well, people who think that are in a dream world, this is an extremely violent, predatory society, like a warrior society, where you got two guards watching hundreds of prisoners. Mm -hmm. So Zena said, you know, you can't get anyone prosecuted. The victim is labelled a rat, a punk, and considered less than human. You can't go to the guards, because then you're a snitch. For snitches, it's KOS, kill on sight by everybody. Or... The guards will put you in a dungeon for months or years and say it's for your own protection. You can do absolutely nothing other than kill the perpetrators. And I asked, well, did, did you think about killing them? And she said, yeah, I thought about killing them. I thought about killing myself, and I still do. And then she started crying, and she couldn't answer any more questions. Now, Zena also did something to herself. And the the, I met a trans prisoner who'd, who'd fully done this thing to, to herself. And Zena copied this. She had a Mosby's medical dictionary. She had no painkillers whatsoever. Yeah. She wake, wakes up one morning, just drinks a cup of coffee, 
gets a felt tip pen, a marker, and draws some lines on her scrotum, picks up a razor blade, slashes her scrotum open. The testicles are on branches called the vas deverens. So she falls the scrotum open. She's got the blade on the spermatic cord and grizzle that's holding this testicle to the vas deverens, and she chops through it and manages to get one testicle off. Now, the testicle must have known what was coming because it retracted inside her. So she's now got her hands in her guts looking for this other testicle. She says she could feel squishy things like organs and stuff. And she's rummaging around in there. And as, as she's rummaging around, she's starting now to feel the red hot pain of cutting one ball off. But she's thinking, you know, this is a one shot deal. I got to do it. So she's scrambling around in her guts looking for it. And where she's got it tied off, to stop the blood squirting out comes undone. So now the blood starts squirting across the cell and she's got the red hot pain kicking in and she's going faint and she's scrambling around in the guts looking for the other nut and it's it's hiding further and further in there. And um, in the end, she's she's bleeding to death. She's losing consciousness and somebody sees her and they manage to get a helicopter to the prison just in time to get her to hospital to save her life. Now, she was put on suicide watch for over a year. And when she got off suicide watch, she cut the other one off. So what the trans prisoners do is they cut the testicles off to stop the testosterone, and they get estrogen smuggled in. They believe they are women trapped in men's bodies, and they they feel more at peace. Um, by doing that, by reversing the flow of the chemicals. Mm-hmm. Now, what prison specifically was this in? All right. So I spent my first 26 months in the Maricopa County jail system run by Sheriff Joe Arpaio. And then when I was sentenced, I got moved over to the Arizona Department of Corrections where I served three, four, three-something years. My, my total sentence was five and three-quarter years, almost six. Right. So the characters I met, T-Bone, I can't remember when we talked about T-Bone last we time. We haven't talked about T-Bone yet, no. Okay, good. Two Tonys, Xena, Frankie, all the main characters I started writing about on my blog, John's Jail Journal. Frankie I did meet in the jail, but most of them I met in the Arizona Department of Corrections. Yes. Yeah. Now, the jail housed about 10,000 prisoners, and I was in about three different um, security levels there. And the Arizona Department of Corrections housed about 60,000 prisoners back then. They got prisons all over the state. So I was in various prisons, started out in the Supermax because of games the prosecutor was paying, and then ended up in a federal deportation uh, prison, which uh, you have to go to if you're going to get sent back to England. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that is some of the most brutal shit I've ever heard, like brutal prison stories, violent prison stories I've ever heard. I've never heard of anyone being decapitated in the prison or let alone castrating themselves in a prison cell. Like that seems like the most grotesque, violent shit I've ever heard happen in a prison. Yeah, I wasn't there when the eyeball extractions occurred. That was way before I'd been arrested. But it was a period of time in Arizona prison history where 60 Minutes did the documentary 
and said that Florence Prison was the most dangerous square mile of real estate in the entire United States. And I, that's just one of many stories um, yeah. that I heard about it back then, whereby, you know, it's just the big, bad redneck cops and all the rapings going on. And mm-hmm. another dead prisoner? Nobody cares. And where, where were you when Xena performed this self-castration? Were you in that prison at the time? Or was this just a story she told you? No, no, I was out and she didn't tell me. All the prisoners started to write to me. Oh, this was after you had already gotten out. Yeah, yeah. All the prisoners were writing to me, my friends. And they were like, you know, wow, um, she's got balls. She's fucking harder core than any of us. No one would do that. You know, this to do that takes such a strong mind. It's truly amazing that she even survived that. I mean, I'm sure she was pretty close to death. When, All right. I there mean... was one in, the one in there that I met. Um, I won't say any names. And the one that Xena did it after... This this one did it. Um, I wasn't around when the one did it, but I know what happened because all the prisoners told me. And what happened was this one successfully cut off both balls. And then she cauterized the wound with a cigarette lighter. Mm, okay. And it got infected. Mm. So she was carried out on a stretcher. It got infected. Um, she was busted. It's you know, it's it's a disciplinary uh, matter. Then you violated the prison laws, um, and she, so she got in all kinds of trouble for doing what she did. Yeah, but she looked like a woman, honestly. Um, guys were competing to try and get her, you know, in bed, and she was totally about it, right? Um, or was she not about it? She had a tough um, guy who was protecting her, but then she got moved off the yard. So I think things got too chaotic for her. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, that's got to be a weird dynamic, especially for the people running the prison, when one of the prisoners in- starts to it, like, when they're on that line of being trans and like, oh, they love, they enjoy sex with the other men. That's got to be a a weird line to dance when you're in charge of that prison. Right? I mean, they just let it go? Is that is that a common thing? All right. Rape is so common in prison, you have to go to a rape class to get taught how not to get raped, which is a complete waste of time. The attitude of the authorities is, we've shown them the class, that ticks our box, so what if they're raping each other? Yeah. Now, in this rape class, you watch a video, and there are some predators in the day room, and it shows the young prisoners coming in. Now, if the predators are able to coax the young people who are hungry into taking food, candy, Snickers bars, whatever, yeah, then they're in debt. So then they say, look, you've got to pay this debt off or else we're going to stab you. Well, I've got no money. All right, well, go in that cell over there, do whatever he says, <laughs> and your debt will be cleared, or else we're going to stab you and kill you. So if you're a scared young person going in, you just got tricked into taking food and getting into debt. What are you going to do to get out of that situation? You're either going to have to fight your way out of it or, you know, some of them, the more vulnerable ones, just break down and do it. And then that's it. Once Mm. they've been converted into a prison punk, it's called getting turned out, becoming a prison punk. 
they are then prostituted out for the rest of their stay. Mm -hmm. And the attitude of the prisoners is, if you don't man up, you deserve it. Because there's a hierarchy. And the bottom are the snitches, the punks, trans. Um, you know, that's why Zena had a very tough boyfriend. Yeah. These, these people get brutalized. Chomo, sex offenders, snitches, punks. These are all at the bottom of the spectrum. So now the conclusion of the rape class was to stop rape, you have to report it. If you report anything, you're a snitch. So after we went to this rape class, a young mentally ill prisoner was gang raped on the yard I was at and nobody reported a single thing. Right. Yeah. They reckon more men are getting raped in prison than the rapes for females. In the free world? In the free world, yeah. Now, how long did it take you from the time you were first went in? Because, you know, obviously there was kind of like a a self-discovery you had to go through for a while, right? Like you talked about it. I've heard you talk about it before. It's like self-reflection, like looking at yourself in a mirror um, for a long period of time until you can finally figure out how to channel this situation that you're in into something that's going to put you on some sort of trajectory forward, right? Like you have to, your mindset had to go through a change at one point. Was there a point that you can remember that you kind of like redefined your outlook on where yeah. you were? Yeah. I was wild when I got arrested, you know. Um, I'd quit running the criminal enterprise, but I was still going out on the weekends with all my party friends. You know, I had gangsteritis. I'm a business graduate that had gangsteritis. And you still so, had a lot of money, right? Well, it was all collapsing. It collapsed with the dot-com bubble. I was, okay. down to, I was down to six figures from seven net worth. Mm -hmm. So I was going out with Wildman and my gangster friends on the weekends and still still clicked up there. So I was wild when I got arrested. And if I would got released in that first year, I would have gone back to the lifestyle. But in the second year, when the prosecutor said I was facing a maximum 200-year sentence, and that pushed me to the point of suicidal insanity, I thought to myself, all right, they filed serious drug offender status on me, which carries 25 to life. I've got 20 plus charges, each which carry 10 plus year sentences stacked up makes 200, which the prosecutor made it clear. If I went to trial and lost, I would get 200 for that alone as well. So I'm thinking, do I want to spend the rest of my life in this kind of an environment? Dead rats in the food, cockroaches crawling all over us at night, guards murdering mentally ill prisoners, just drug and gang infested mayhem. People's heads getting smashed in every day. Is this, you know, can I just live like this for the rest of my life? No. So I decided to kill myself after a guard did a security walk. And before I was going to slash my wrist, I wanted to say goodbye to my family and friends. So I get the pictures out, my mom, dad, girlfriend, sister. And I started to get really sad. Mm. Thinking my mom's going to get a call saying, you know, your son's just killed himself in a foreign jail. And to be honest, I don't want anyone's pity here. I deserve to be in there, but I started to cry at that point. And um, the thought of putting my mum through that just stopped me from killing myself. So that pressure on my brain was working on crushing that materialistic, hedonistic, narcissistic person out of me. And the turning point around that time came, the prisoner had come into my cell. He's got a steel rod in his leg. The screws are loose. 
he's in agony. He's got hepatitis C, he's got syphilis, he's got stomach cancer. And whenever he goes on the toilet, he's in absolute agony. His stomach cancer is so advanced, he's going to die in that jail within a couple of years. And I was thinking, holy shit, I was feeling so sorry for myself. I was going to slash my wrists and bleed out. Listen to this guy's story. There's always somebody worse off. And my heart opened to the pain and suffering of other people. I thought prisoners lock them up, throw away the key. The serial killers, paedophiles, rapists, murderers, because that's all you see in the news. How extreme the crimes are on one side and how easy it is on the other. They've all got PlayStations, gourmet food, luxuries, and that keeps the public hating on the prison population. Mm-hmm. But when I went to court and the, the audience of all the other prisoners in the, when I was first arrested heard my charges and heard my bail was $750,000 bond, they were all gasping and they were gasping because they were all low-level drug users and people who were doing petty crimes to finance drug addiction. And the system, they are the fodder for the system. Fifty thousand dollars a year of taxpayers money per prisoner per arrest i saw black kids and mexican kids with like a roach of weed getting like a two-year sentence because they had prior convictions so a roach of weed two years taxpayer hundred thousand to house that person it's just a money-making industry so yeah i don't support pedophiles rapists serial killers no way they're a fraction of the prison population i saw People in prison were society's most vulnerable people. People with addiction issues. Soldiers, more than half of my friends were soldiers. Come really? back from war. Yeah, PTSD, come back from wars. No help from the government, just used and abused. Get on street drugs to self-medicate and end up in prison. And, you know, they don't give a shit about them. They, come, they get them to do their dirty work, send them off to the Middle East. They come back messed up in the head and then they end up in prison. You got twenty plus soldiers a day right now committing suicide in your country. Right, it's absolutely, it's absolutely ridiculous. And still so, fighting, and still fighting the government just to get the um, just to get the VA to pay for some of their. There's guys that have Agent Orange from Vietnam that still are fighting the government to get them to pay for their treatment, and and they're losing. It's yeah, they're just used. They're just used. It's it's, it's horrific. And the craziest part about that is there's still it's, – it's amazing that there's any sense of patriotism even within these veterans that are fighting the country to pay for the shit they've gone through. Because they know, you know there's always a new generation that they can um, brainwash. And that's what they rely on. They just rely on young, idealistic people, pump them up with patriotic notions and send them off as cannon fodder. Yeah. So prison is the biggest house of the mentally ill. When they shut down the um, mental hospitals after Cuckoo's Nest came out, prisons by default became the biggest house of the mentally ill. Like I said earlier, a third of them couldn't even read or write. Um, I I started to listen to the stories. 90% were injecting heroin. Now people think, all right, filthy heroin addicts, they don't deserve anything, scum of the earth, stealing stuff. Well, I had to break through that and listen to the stories. And they were, they were sexually molested as kids. They'd seen their parents die. They, they didn't even have parents. Just thrown away onto the streets, kicked out of their houses where they'd been abused uh, 
previously. And then what are they going to do to fend them for themselves? Getting no help from anyone. They get in with the gangs, they get on the drugs, and they're taking the heroin because heroin is so strong, it puts them so far out of their minds. Mm. They don't have to think about all the abuse and the horrors that they've suffered because no one's given them the tools to deal with that. So you've got human beings being warehoused for profits in America for the private prisons and the contracts are in the tens of billions a year. And then the kickdowns to the politicians and the legislators are in the tens of millions a year in political contributions. They're paying these guys off to tighten laws to put more people in prison so they can make more profits. That's why America's got one in 100 adults in prison right now. It's ridiculous. That's why oh, you've got social unrest. You know, I, I, the police have got arrest quotas. I heard a policeman say, I go in a black neighborhood and make my arrest. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. Right. They've got to make so many arrests. They just go where they can arrest low-level drug users. They're the easiest ones. But right. on the news, you know, they're arresting Pablo Escobar, which is bullshit. It's so hard to arrest a drug trafficker. The low-hanging fruit are the, the low-level drug users, the street-level people. So all this social unrest you've got going on around the world right now is a reaction to the extreme the prison system has gone in America and the drug laws and the war on drugs. If you're a black guy walking around your neighborhood, got some weed on you, cop might pull you over, not just bust your weed, but he might shoot you dead. Right. This is all a function of war on drugs. So, you know, all, all drugs should be legalized, taken, you know, kids should be educated and not incarcerated. That's my philosophy. What what is the perspective from your area of the world on what's going on? I mean, I know what's going on globally right now, but we've gone out in the street and we've seen, you know, you got people, you've got two sides of the street. One of them are all Trump supporters or they call themselves back the blue where they're supporting the police. And you have the other side of the street that's Black Lives Matter. It's 50-50 white people and black people on the Black Lives Matter. And the people that are on the other side saying, we back the police, we support the blue, Trump 2020, it seems like it's way older of a generation. And it doesn't matter what the truth is about anything. It's just they're stuck in their ideologies and it's just this primal instinct they want to it's they just want to fight it's so wild seeing it in real life so anyways i was just interested to hear the point of view from someone like you living in your part of the world well my point of view is this you know i read over a thousand books in just under six years i've become obsessed with history philosophy psychology yeah and technology advances but human nature remains the same so throughout history people have always formed groups and that and these groups will brutalize or go to war with other groups of people call it religion politics race anything you want you could fix the race problem and people would find another way to form groups to attack other people mm -hmm. in the jail it was the white gang the black gang the mexican gang the mexican-american gang and whichever group was strongest and had the most numbers would brutalize the groups with the least numbers. And that's a microcosm of society. Yeah, it so, seems like it, it really relates back to prison, right? I mean, that seems like a very boiled down version of what the broad spectrum is in the world. Well, the racism and racial division that, you know, America became politically correct, but it passed, it bypassed the prison system. It's been in there from the, for the last decade and it's not changed. And if you can keep the prisoners divided like that, you can conquer and control them. 
And if the elites can keep the population divided, they can conquer and control them. So that's what I believe it is, it's all divide and conquer. Yeah, I mean, you can clearly see that the right, the right-wing conservatives, they signal, they call, they signal to the white working class and the big businesses like oil, and the left signals to the colored working, the brown and black working class, and elite level like Silicon Valley. But it seems like if the two working classes work together, the majority of power would be there. Yeah, yeah, there you go. And you've got the police who are from the working class policing the working class. So the working class is policing itself. How clever is that if you're running a country? Right, right. The prisons, Over a long period the prisons of time. are run on prison labor. If all the prisoners refused to work, the prisons would collapse. Mm-hmm. Because they can use prison labor as, as slaves. Slavery was not abolished in America. There was a loophole in the Constitution. Slavery is abolished except for people convicted of crimes. So not only are they using the prisoners as slave labor force to run the prison system, all the major companies in America are using that slave labor force as well. Everything from um, military equipment to road signs and all these contracts that they do. It's just one big That's financial shakedown. God. Yeah. And another thing, like I told you, we were out in the streets do- documenting some stuff and doing some street interviews. A lot of people on the on the uh, the back the blue side of things or on the Trump like conservative side that were against the Black Lives Matter people, they're all talking about the George Soros guy. Yeah. Who who is George Soros? <laughs> so I... He seems he seems like some big like like mystical figure. <laughs> I was a worshipper of George Soros when I was a kid. Really? Yeah, because I started following the stock market at night at 14. Started trading when I was 16. I went down the library and I ordered all of the books written by the stock market greats. Going back, you know, a century. And George Soros was big time. And he, he'd had his books published about trading in the stock market. He almost bankrupted the Bank of England when he sold short the pound. And he made billions off it. So my motto then, after watching what that movie Wall Street, was greed is good. All I cared about was being a millionaire by the time I'm 30. Mm-hmm. It's dog eat dog, fuck all be fucked in the business world. Right. I had no moral compass. I just wanted to make money. So when you have no moral compass and you just want to make money, you look up to people like George Soros, which is completely reversed, you know, as you know, uh, my activism and everything now, helping school kids. But yeah, in my 20s, I was just this <clears throat> testosterone-fueled financial maniac, drug-fueled, and I thought it was cool <laughs> that George Soros was making billions and filed the highest income ever in the history of the world um, for tax purposes. I thought that was cool. I aspired to that back then. Yeah. Yeah. So who is he now? Why is everyone saying that he is? Why Why does everyone say that he's funding these people like Black like Black Lives Matter and all okay. this? Okay. Okay. So you've got um, divide and conquer is the strategy used by the elites, and the theory is that certain families are the most wealthy and powerful people in the world including the Rothschilds, Rockefellers, those kind of families, 
um, who control the politicians, and that Soros is a front man for those families, and he does their bidding. And the theories are that he promotes things that will increase the divide and conquer factor in the country. Okay. So yeah. they, they think that he's personally financing these these people on the streets who are causing chaos. Yeah, but then it gets to the point where that it's thrown around so much that anyone who tries to do anything, their enemies just say, well, George Soros is, finding this, is financing this guy to try and undermine what they're doing. So what is the, the waters are so muddied with all of this stuff, it's hard to discern what the truth is. Yeah. It's really, it's really weird. Well, on the subject of um, Black Lives Matter, there was a guy I met in prison called T-Bone. Now, yeah, I was on the yard, and this T-Bone black guy, almost six and a half foot, just strides across the yard, the Sonoran Desert, looking like something out of a Conan movie. <laughs> yeah, just... His biceps were bigger than my head. And because of, <laughs> yeah, because of the rules of racial division, I never would have approached him. He was intimidating. <laughs> but the prisoners were finding out, you know, that I was writing a blog, getting mm. pen pals, hooking people up with pen pals and books. So T-Bone lingered in my doorway one night. I was just writing at my little stool, table, screw-to-the-wall combination and the whole room went dark as he completely blocked the sunlight out. Holy shit. So I just turned around, and he just stood there with his trousers on. <laughs> Good I'm thing thinking, they were on. <laughs> oh. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, what does this guy want? But I got talking to him, and he was interested in English history and military history in particular, mm -hmm. and we hit it off. Now, T-Bone, I learned, was using his skills as a U.S. Marine to stop prison rape. His entire body was covered in scars, not tiny little scratches, horseshoe-sized scars from all the life and death prison stories he had, and also from the action he saw as a U.S. Marine. So he said it was the foulest thing anyone could do. You know, he was very religious and he believed mm. that God had his back. Now, if you're intervening in someone getting raped, that's considered policing the yard. Mm -hmm. So that doesn't go down well with a lot of the prisoners either, even though some people think rape's horrible and it's a good thing he's doing. So you've got a kind of division there going against the prison rules, helping people being a hero. Right. So he had to fight a lot of people. And oh boy, could he fight. So I showed up in the library one time and the library was being used as an outpost for blowjobs. So I showed up in the library one time and there was this big biker guy was getting a blowjob off this other skinny um, kid, young person. And um, I walked in there, said, is everything all good? And the kid told me just to leave, get out. No, you know, it wasn't my business. So I, I just left. Now, T-Bone caught wind of this. And also, um, the guy was spreading rumors that T-Bone was a snitch. 
Now, my cellmate was present when what followed went down. I had a, a cellmate called Long Island. He's the guy who hooked me up with two Tonys. Okay. So, Long Island was in the cell belonging to the serial home invader torturer guy. Right. Did I tell you that one in part one? The guy who threatened yep. me with bad luck in the sock? Yeah. Yep. So, he would smash your head in. Yeah. So, Long Island is in his cell. And then there's that guy we'll call that guy bud the serial home invader torturer okay there's another huge biker in there called ken and he's massive and he's got his cellmate in the cannonball who's the guy who was forcing the young guy to give him head in the library so <laughs> you got one two three white dudes in the cell None of them as big as T-Bone or as good at fighting as T-Bone, but Bud in particular is quite psychopathic and had his padlock in the sock. Yeah. So, T-Bone walks in, says to Cannonball, who you calling a snitch? Cannonball said something back, offensive, and T-Bone was just like, bam, 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 bam on his face, knocked him out within seconds, and his head fell so hard against the toilet, water bounced out of the toilet. And then T-Bone looks around the room at the other guys and they all just froze because he was about to take them out as well. I mean, this guy is, is a fucking killing machine. And yeah, my cellmate was in there, Long Island. He came back and he told me the story. Now, the guy he hit tried to hide it because that's snitching, you know, if the guards see it's dry snitching. Because if the guards if see, they you, see you all beat up, yeah, that's dry snitching. So you got to hide it. Because if the yard's going to get locked down, they're going to do a knuckle check. Mm-hmm. So um, the guy couldn't hide it, man. He 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 looked oh. like he'd been hit by a train. I saw him when they took him off the yard. His face was like a blue balloon, just all swollen up. And um, they took Tebow off the yard for a bit, but they brought him back on. Um, and he was lucky because they said they were going to street charge him, but they dropped it. So I think they supported what T-Bone did on that occasion. Yeah. Wow. But T-Bone told me stories about from the Xena pulling eyeballs mm-hmm. out era. Okay. And T-Bone said um, back then, the raping, there was a smell on the run from so many dudes getting raped. Ugh. Um, white dudes. Um you know, and big guys just kissing them like they were women. Um, he said that they wouldn't just rape them with their dicks in their asses. They'd stick like shampoo bottles, um, shanks. Um, they do all kinds of, of crazy things that they'd stick in their asses as well. And um, yeah, God damn. yeah I, wrote, I wrote a blog on it called T-Bone on Prison Rape. But I can't find it right now, and it gives all the details. T-Bone on Prison Rape. Let's see if it's on. If it's on um, Google, delete. Because there was a lot of details that I just can't remember off the top of my head. Yeah, yeah. Is he? Is where's T-Bone now? Oh man, this is so sad. All right, here's an example then of the injustice against black people. Now, T-Bone was released from prison. He'd already served like almost 30 years, in and out, in and out. 30? Okay. Yeah, he must be in his 60s now, ever ever since he got out of the Marines. All right, so when he got out of the Marines, 
set himself up as a bodyguard and um, he was making up to $1,000 a day. Now, in that lifestyle, you know, he's, he's getting on the cocaine. Mm-hmm. He's getting deep. And his crimes were never major. They all revolve around drug addiction. You know, like I said, he's got PTSD, um, stealing for drugs and things like that. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's a repeat offender. He got out about five or six years ago. And I was on the phone every day with him trying to get his life story um, down as a book because I knew that would give him credibility to do talks in schools and churches, which is what he wants to do. But I also knew I was in a race against time. When someone like T-Bone gets out of prison, there's special teams of cops watching them that get rewarded somehow. I don't know whether they get money or they get get, get the career promotions, they got arrest quotas and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. They're watching these guys to put them back in as soon as possible just to get them off the streets. Really? Yeah, that's what it's like. That's what it's like for these guys. And um, it all went down. It went down. There was a SWAT team raid. They put a shotgun to his neighbor's head, some woman asking, how do you know T-Bone? How do you know, how do you know him? How do you know him? She'd done nothing wrong. So they took T-Bone in and they said, look, you've done a robbery. You're facing a 200-year sentence if you lose at trial. Just sign guilty, admit you did the robbery, and you know we'll just bang you up for 10 or 15 years. And he said, no, I've not done the robbery. Uh, now, this is how they break people down if they've not done a crime. They say you're going to get a life sentence. Sign here. And people, innocent people, will rather risk getting hundreds of years or dozens of years. They'd rather risk that, not risk that, and just sign and get like five years or 10 years rather than, because they know what happens. They're not going to win at court, black guy. So T-Bone prays and he believes God has his back and he's not mm-hmm. done it. And he says, no, I'm going to trial. Mm-hmm. And for a black man to go to trial in Arizona, heaven help you, man. It's not going to happen. Trial is just theater. Whoever's got mm-hmm. the most money puts on the best show. And that's always the state. And they give you a public defender for, you know, five thousand pounds budget for a public defender. You can't put on any any kind of theatre show at all. Mm-hmm. So Timon goes to trial, and his lawyer says to the cop on the stand, "Was there a camera at the location you said he's done this robbery?" Right. Yes, there was the camera. Show us the video of him doing the robbery. I didn't have time to get the video. That's what the cop said. They tried it on because they know he's more likely to sign a plea bargain and admit guilt for innocence than go to trial and risk 200 years. So he called him right. out and he, he won it. He won it. He was so happy. He thought he was wow. getting out. The jury found him innocent. So what did they do? They slapped another charge on him. They said he took $20 off a countertop in a shop, found him guilty and gave him 13 years. Black lives do not matter one bit in the U.S. justice system. From what I saw, my own experience, and that is one story of many. I was there when a war hero got sentenced. The Vietnam vet had been shot in the head by a sniper. He'd won Purple Heart Medal for bravery. I was there in the court. Prosecutor said he's unemployed. He's got a nice new car. There was some crumbs of cocaine in it. He must be a dealer. And the judge was like, bam, sent him away for almost 10 years just like that. Yeah, these are the people that feed the system. The prison population has to constantly expand to keep the profits rolling in. Arizona's 
education budget is down to what now? 20 on the list, something like that. And prisons is in the, like the top five, I think. All about making money off human suffering. And they go for the most vulnerable people. Because if you arrest a rich white kid, that kid's family is going to get him a high-priced lawyer. Right. That, kid, that kid's family might know a prosecutor or a judge. Right. They play the odds. They go for the poorest people in society. People like Stephen Avery and Brendan Dassey and Making a Murderer. They're just typical um, kind of people that they go after. Yeah. Let's take a quick uh, lateral step back to when you were in prison and you told a story about you were working in the cafeteria God. or something and, yeah. and and you were cleaning out trays i don't know what you like had a hole where people would just shove their tray their dirty trays in and you would like hose them down yep. and you t you took like a, a cigarette break or something and you sat on a crate and someone said get the fuck off my crate oh man. so who is that I'm guy in, i'm in minimum security and, um, you know, I'm about, it's all short timers and I think I'm going to get out soon. Nothing, no more problems. Everything's yeah. going to go, everything's going to go fine. And, um, I'm assigned to the kitchen duty. So my job is in what's called the clipper room. Okay. Now in the clipper room, um, that's where you start. <laughs> I remember the first day, this Chicano comes up to me and goes, this is welcome to Hell's Kitchen. You're going <laughs> to be in the clipper room. It's the hardest job on the yard. That's where everybody starts out. So I go in the clipper room. And in the clipper room, there's like a hole in the wall where the chow trays come in. Mm -hmm. So in the chow hall, you've got 200 prisoners are marched in. Out of another hole in the wall comes a tray to them. You can't see the person behind the wall handing you the tray. Supposed to stop homey hookups. You know, people. Okay. okay. Yeah. So there's a hole in the wall, the trays come out, hole in the wall, the trays come in. 200 people come in, they got 15 minutes to eat. If you ain't finished eating, tough shit. You got to get out. So everyone's like eating really fast, not chewing properly. At the end of that 15 minutes, Bam, bam, bam. All the trays just start coming in. One after the other. One after the other. One after these giant sinks. Now you gotta like, you gotta get on these trays and hose them down and move to the next thing. And then they all go into this dishwasher. And when I when I when I say dishwasher, this thing is like the size of a drive-in car wash. And it was so broken, it had a gas leak. And it was every now and then it would shoot out flames and people's hurt. People's send almost setting people on fire and shit. Oh were, my god! There were days when we revolted because it was like making these noises, like it was going to explode. It would go boom, 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 louder and louder and louder. We have to turn it off. <laughs> yeah, it was mental. The guy running the kitchen was a white shirt, and when I say running the, the kitchen, that's an outside employee, not a prisoner. Was a white shirt. Was this? Um, African guy we call Blood Diamonds. <laughs> and uh, when we say, like, you know, it's going to blow up, it's going to blow up, we're stopping working. He's like, there's nothing you can do. Keep working, keep working. He was always, you know, just pushing us, pushing us, pushing us. Um, so I'm in the kitchen doing my kitchen work. And during a break, I sit on a crate. Now, a guy who has murdered two people in the prison system magpie we'll call him mm -hmm. comes up to me 
and says, that's my seat, get off it. Right. Everyone looks. Remember when I told you the gang rules in part one? If someone calls you punk or hits you or anything, you must strike back or else everyone's going to prey on you. So if I get off that seat now, I'm a punk. So this was your first time in that area, so you didn't know that that's where he typically sat or something? Or what was that about? Exactly. Okay. I didn't even know whether he was telling the truth. Right. You just, just you just you just knew you couldn't follow his command. He was just trying to punk me out, and I could not follow his command. My decision criteria is this: Do I want to have a problem with everybody on the yard by being a punk, or do I want to have a problem with one person, even though that person has murdered two people in prison? I think I would rather have a problem with one person, so stayed on the seat. So he starts kicking off. He's saying that he's going to come to my cell and shank me. I'm going to be his third victim. And I've got a workout partner at that time called Iron Man, who was trained, highly trained in martial arts. And you can't do martial arts in prison. It's illegal. So there was like a room on the end of a run on the upper tier where we could go and do yoga. (laughs) And... We were in there one night. He's teaching me martial arts. And there's a guard called the Bloodhound. He's called the Bloodhound because it was said that he could smell hooch from 100 yards away. <laughs> yeah. So me and Iron Man are doing martial arts. And Iron Man says that Magpie's got a steel rod in his leg because he's been shot in prison by the guards. So Iron Man wants me to do a snap kick on the iron rod in this guy's leg. And then as he as he falls forward to, to um, put him out of action by going for his eyeballs, he's, he's, he's teaching me all this stuff. But then the, we start the thing, either that or just gouge him or whatever. Yeah. So so he's teaching me these things, and um, we had a sense that something was coming at us. Someone was approaching. And we didn't know what it was, the bloodhound. He was coming to bust us. If he catches us doing martial arts, we'll get a disciplinary ticket, a write-up. We'll lose our visit. We might get sent to lockdown, a prison within a prison. All these bad things will happen. So, all of a sudden, we both jumped into tree pose in yoga. We were both just in tree pose as the bloodhound jumps into the cell. And there's nothing he could do about that because yoga is perfectly legal. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Now, every night after my training with Iron Man, I'm getting more and more perplexed because this thing's hanging over me. and I just want the beef to be squashed. Right. So I said to Iron Man, why don't I just steam into his, his room, have the fight and get it over with? And Iron Man said, look, the cameras will show you've gone to his room. You'll be the aggressor. You're about to get released. But if they file street charges on you for going into his room, you could get another five years onto your sentence. Right. So every night I'm in my cell with my sneakers on, just waiting for him to come in. I'm just going to bounce up. And about, he's mouthing off, you know, he's going to do this, he's going to do that. And eventually the people on the yard said to him, if you don't go in and do something after all this mouthing off, you're going to have to leave the yard, which means they're going to beat him up and, and kick him off the yard. So one night he comes into my cell and I jump up 
you know, assume the position, kind of turn a, a bit of an angle from him, ready to ready to throw um, a punch and stuff. But he's got like a look on his face, and I'm trying to figure it out. He doesn't look like he wants to fight, but maybe he's trying to sucker punch me. He got into. To... How did he get in? Oh, this is this was like a yard where you could just walk into people's cells. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, yeah. He just came up the stairs, walked along the tier, and came into my cell. So, I jump up. I'm ready. Look at him. He looks like he's not going to get down, but I'm thinking maybe he's trying to trick me into a false sense of security, and then he's going to just go bam, bam. So I'm looking at him. I'm saying, "What's up?" And he's like, he said that he's come to apologize. I said, for what? I said, what? And he goes, he said he was just clowning. He said he was, when he said he was going to kill me, he was just clowning. Now, yeah. I said to him, I said, when someone who's killed two people in the prison system tells someone and their friends that they're going to kill them, you know, because of your history, we're not going to see that as clowning. And he's like, yeah, yeah, I, I understand that. Um, but, but you know, I'm about to get released. And if I kill you, I could get the death penalty or I'll never get out. I've already served 30-something years, whatever it was. He said that the guys he killed, he killed them when he first came in. It was either them or him. It was something he had to do. And... He extended his sentence and he was looking forward to getting out. And then he got a really sad look on his face and he said, um, he goes, England, all I know is heroin. He goes, I've got money. My dad had a business, but how am I going to survive? All I know is heroin. That's what, you know, like I said, all the, all the day revolved was getting the heroin and getting high on heroin to forget about the troubles. And he looked at me. And he knew I had a female visiting me and he asked me for help and I, I promised him some help, but he never followed through. And in the end, this guy I thought I was going to have to fight. He was maybe going to try and stab me to death. I saw, I felt his pain. Right. I felt his heart open when he was looking at me talking about the heroin. And I just felt the pain of everything he'd been through for 30 years and wondered what kind of horrible life he'd had. And I completely reversed in that second of my heart opening from this guy being my, my number one enemy coming to kill me to feeling sorry for the dude. And that's what it's like. They've all got, even the most heinous um, criminals who do murders and stuff, they've all got, behind every big crime, there's a horrific story of child abuse. That's what I've learned. Not right. just from my prison experience, but from, I've done over 100 podcasts now on my channel. More than half of them gangsters and criminals and um a lot of them were abused as well. One one guy, he went to his best friend's house. Best friend wasn't home. The dad said, come in, got him drunk and raped him. And he went to prison for trying to kill that guy. And then when he went back to, when he got out of prison, he went straight to that guy's house and tried to kill him again. And then again, he kept doing it and doing it until he exploded and stabbed his friend and ended up in prison for that as well. So this is something that this abuse trajectory is something that if society society wants to improve, we really need to start helping these young people who are suffering. Yeah, I know. I know that's a vast majority of of the people that are in there. Um, But it's so interesting how there is just this fascination with these types of people 
in pop culture and in the media, you know what I mean? Especially when they're, when they're murderers, like there's so many documentaries, for example. And I think one of like the key things, I don't know if you've noticed this or if you've done a lot of studying on this, but the people who go through not necessarily child trauma or child abuse, but they don't get that connection when they're in that infant stage. Like for ex- like, just for an example, uh, Ted Kaczynski. How I just watched this documentary, and it ta- they talk about how when he was an infant, he basically broke out in hives and had to go to the hospital for like months and months and months. And when he came back after without, they wouldn't allow his parents to visit him more than an hour a week. And when he came back, he just was like gone. Like he was just like he would stare off into space. He had gone from like this bubbly, happy little kid to just like nobody's home. He lost all his empathy. He lost his moral compass. And that guy was pretty fucking smart considering he was in Harvard by the age of 16 and doing all this stuff. And, you know, the people like that, like that guy had a cult following from prison. You know, the stuff that he talked about or whatever, he had sort of like developed this massive group of people that worshipped him. How many people did you run into, if any, in prison or after prison that were you would consider true psychopaths? Oh, my goodness. I've known psychopaths before prison, in prison, and after prison. And I think the psychopathy is highest when they are youngest, and then it mellows out, and they find ways to make alliances with people, and they just you know become more strategic rather than brute force in your face violence so two tonys was an example you know um as a younger person on the cocaine just whacking people and not thinking twice you know um just just looked at it as a as a business transaction uh kind of thing um some of these mafia guys see it as the same as being in the military you signing up to something where you're going to kill or be killed. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you've got, you know, I've never associated with the complete psychopathic uh, monsters who would just torture and, and kill uh, kids and, and, and women and stuff like that. I've never associated or met um, anybody like that. Who like pre like planned out their murders. You know what I mean? Like, like thought like I'm going to they plan them out perfectly. Like this is going to be the perfect per- person I'm going to kill. And I'm going to write a journal about every single kill. Like, it's like this. Well, two Tonys detailed all of his methods of killing and body disposal to me. And they're in his book, um, The Mafia Philosopher, Two Tonys, which is on Amazon. And um, he, you know, he would burn all of his clothes afterwards. They'd have plastic sheets. Mm. Um, They'd get rid of the gun. It was all done rather meticulously. But he had problems getting rid of bodies because he whacked people from Arizona to Alaska. And in certain parts of the world, depending upon the temperature, the body will decompose and rot away. But the bodies in Alaska, they didn't. The birds didn't eat them. They were hoping the birds would eat one and it didn't eat it. And it just remained in the cold temperature and the cops found it. And to Tony said that, you know, the the various methods of body disposal. Um, One was you dig a deep hole, 
bury the body and then you put a dead animal over the body so many feet higher because when the cadaver dog comes out it'll hit on the animal and then they'll, they'll stop digging to find the human corpse mm. but, but even better invest in funeral homes which is what the Bonanno crime family did who two Tonys worked for so two Tonys came on, up under um, Charlie Bats Battaglia who was a lieutenant for the Bonanno crime family and Charlie Bats Battaglia had whacked people from coast to coast and got rid of bodies and was an expert and never never been caught for any of that. So he passed that information down to two Tonys and that's how he learned to get away with these things. Because he, he killed a lot of people over the years and got away with all of it until finally at the end um, it all caught up with him. There's obviously a difference though, right? I mean, he he was doing it, it, it was very intertwined in his business and it, it wasn't just out of pure enjoyment he was killing people. You know, he didn't he didn't get some sort of dopamine rush from murdering people. He was doing it because he he had to. Well, there was one where he whacked a guy in a hotel room who was late on a there was a cocaine shipment was late, and the guy gave the money to um, two Tonys been up all night on coke, and he was getting more and more pissed off on him, and he goes into the guy's room. Oh, the guy came into his room. I can't remember what it was. And the guy said something disrespectful. And Sue Tony just blew his brains out. So I wouldn't say it was the smartest thing to, to do from a business perspective. To <laughs> yeah. Risk yourself, you know, for, in a death penalty state over such a small. But when you're on coke and you're feeling disrespected and your ego's pumped up like that, then, the, you, you know, you're just whacking people for trivial reasons. Right. If you're a psychopath. And he said he was a psychopath. He said that he was? Yeah. Now, where he passed away, right? Even as he was an old man before he passed away, he spent the day fantasizing about smashing sex offenders' teeth in with crowbars and things like that. Mm. <laughs> now, what was it like leading up to your release finally in prison oh the release it was um happy because you know the first year of incarceration seems to last forever and then it kind of like goes starts going faster and faster and faster mm. and by the end of it it's going really fast and they say that going into prison really messes with your head, but so does coming out. And in this country, they call it gay fever. Right. So you're thinking, you know, am I going to get a girlfriend? You're scared, right? You have lots of fear. Will I? Uh, will people cross the road to avoid me? I've been in prison now. How can I get a job? So all these fears are in your in your head. But I was blessed to have such a good family. Mm. My mom, my dad, my sister, and. Um, so my release story is, I've got this release that this lawyer, that the New Mexican Mafia, the, the, the lawyers got me this release date. And the release date comes, but they don't release me. So I'm thinking, oh, they've made some kind of mistake. It was a few days later they did finally release me. I had this thing called a half-time release for a non-US uh, citizen that this kind of loophole lawyer got me. And I was thinking, has it, has it been processed? Is it processed? So I'm all worried, you know, I'm not going to get out. I'm going to have to do more and more years. But in the end, I got this. It came down. 
the feds came to get me to take me to the federal deportation prison. I can't remember where it was it, Florence, Marana, somewhere in Arizona. Uh, it's been so long now. So I'm in this federal deportation prison, which of course is all Mexicans and one guy from England. And I picked up a bit of Spanish by then. So I'm talking to them. You know, some of them can't speak English. So they're asking me to ask the guards certain things. So I'm making myself useful um, with the Mexican community. And they can't give you the date of your exact release for security reasons. So eventually they come and say, roll up Atwood, you know, your release is, is, is come. And um, they put us all on a Con Air flight. Con Air? Yeah, have you seen Con Air? Yes, only my favorite movie in the world. So me and all the Mexicans are shackled in this on this prison bus. So that's good to hear. There's no air con on. It's the snow and How, is it? Is the plane just like the plane in Con Air? What happens is it's all federal marshals. They're looking at you. There's like rows of federal marshals and rows of prisoners. And you're all shackled. You can't go up and have a pee or anything. And if you try anything funny, they look like they're going to shoot you. So we all get on. No, first off, they leave us on the bus for ages, and we're all up near suffocating in, in the desert. <laughs> then they put us on the plane. Then they say the plane has broke down, and we've got to go back to the jail and come back the next day. So it's all this, this, this palaver. Eventually, the plane takes off, and um, for a couple of days then, I'm on Connor, going across Arizona and California, dropping off and picking up Mexicans. It's like they make work for themselves, just flying these planes around. Wow. They, they, they arrest Mexicans and they drop them off at a different part of the border where they arrested them in the hope that, you know, that's going to mm. cause them not to come back in. It's, 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 all, it's all crap. It's all, again, government-financed um, bullshit at the taxpayer's expense. So I get to L.A. and um, I'm in a holding cell then in L.A., and it's going all through the night. And I'm so excited I'm getting out, I can't sleep. But I'm so tired as well. And my, my head's like nodding and stuff. I sat there, there's no seats or anything. Just crouched against the wall. And, you know. and um, there was a guy in there who'd been in the news. He'd crashed a some kind of car. I don't know if it was a Ferrari or what. It was worth a couple hundred grand, I think, this car. He crashed this car at 160 miles an hour or something. Jesus. <laughs> so ridiculous. Like, I don't know what he's been doing. Uh, but this, this like, European gangster, I can't remember his name. I've written it all in my book, Prison Time, if you want to mm -hmm. check that out. Uh, my trilogy is on Amazon as well. It's um, Party Time, Hard Time, Prison Time. Prison Time details my release. And um, so I'm talking to him. He's quite cool. He's like, yeah, I got a place in London. Come and come and see me in London and all this stuff. <laughs> and I, I have looked since. He's, he is a proper full-on gangster. He's got like a wiki page and I think he's back in prison now. Um, so I'm talking to him. He's been on the news. So he's kind of like a bit of a celebrity in there with his record crash. And everyone just gets really quiet as the night progresses. You're like two, three in the morning. Except for some guy from was he from brazil no argentina argentina mm. and this guy is like hyper i don't know if he's on coke or crystal meth so everyone's falling asleep and no, but trying to fall asleep but they can't because this guy's just telling all these stories and he's like 
yeah, my woman is a supermodel and she's flown all the way to Argentina. She's waiting for me. We're going to get married. And she's so kind. She stops for homeless people and she wakes me up every day, every single day with a blowjob. And this guy's just going on and on wow. and on. And I'm thinking, you know, even this guy's bragging or he's insane. What the fuck? But he's going on and on and on and nobody could sleep. And one minute I'm just sat in the corner trying to sleep. And next minute I'm like, I fucking, I just walk over and start listening to him. I'm losing my mind as well. You know, just trying to occupy my time. I don't know what I'm doing. So after days of this, this is what it's like. Nothing happens in a hurry. Yeah. Days of this. The, um, a guard comes and says, look, I'm taking some of you to the airport. And he calls out me and the Argentinian. So <laughs> we leave the jail in this, this prison bus, prison van. We're all shackled up. We've got one guy. I think there's just one guard in there, federal, federal driver. And um, you know what the traffic's like in LA? It is bumper to bumper. Yeah. So we are we are just stuck all the way. And the driver goes, if we don't get there, this is all going to have to be rescheduled. Now I'm thinking rescheduled means we just get on the next flight. You know, we can't go on this flight. We just get on the next flight. And the Argentinian, he's he's just. He was, he's been hyper still. Still, still tweaking? Drive, still tweaking. All of a sudden, his face just goes to sheer panic. It's like, rescheduled? Rescheduled? I'm like, yeah, no problem. We're just going to get rescheduled. No, don't you know what rescheduled means? And he goes, that means we have to go back to our original, you know, to some federal deportation prison and the whole thing, and it takes weeks or months to reschedule to get on another flight. So he explains this, and I'm like, oh, my fucking God, you know. My parents are on the way to London to meet me at the airport. So we get to, uh, no, he brings us back to the jail. And because um, we're getting rescheduled, and the oh, Argentinian wow. by now, the Argentinian by now has just lost his mind. He's walk. We're both walking to the jail. The Argentinian starts going, "Can I have a cigarette? Can I smoke? Can someone give me a cigarette?" And of course, no one's going to give him a fucking cigarette. He's a, he's a convict in in, cha- in chains. Right. He just starts going crazy. I need a cigarette. And they end up just putting him in a room. And he's just like rocking like this. And he's just that's it. He's he's completely done. No. What, just- what kind of shit did he have to smoke to last that long? I have no idea. But I'm feeling for him. You know, he's saying his supermodel girlfriend's waiting for him to marry. <laughs> wow. <laughs> so, um, whether he was full of shit or not, he, you know, it would have been nice for him to have got out and have a life. So, yeah. the guard says to me, look, I've looked into this and he's missed his flight. He's got to be rescheduled, but there's still time to get your flight. So they take me out again. And I, I'm like, woo! So I oh. get to, yeah, yeah. So I get to the airport. I'm sat in the van. The guard says, "Oh no, I say I wanna, I wanna um, use the toilet. I need to pee. You know, I've been hours of this. I've not had the chance yeah. to pee." Right. He's like, "You're not gonna try anything funny, are you?" I'm like, "No, you know, I just want to go home." 
So he takes me into a toilet and he chains me to a like a railing thing next to the toilet. He chains me to it while he goes to pee. And um, I pee and then he brings me out and he's still like going, you're not going to try anything funny. You're not going to try anything funny. I'm like, no, I just want to go home. So I had a guy, I brought a guy on the other, you know, a few weeks ago and he, he, he just looked really funny and shifty and the captain wouldn't let him on the plane and he had to be rescheduled. You know, you're not going to try anything funny. Like, no, no, you know, I'm a, I'm a business graduate. I'm a stock market guy. I'm not trying. So he takes me on the plane. He goes, I'm going to put you on first so you don't scare the passengers. And there's a cabin crew from London. And they talked to me like I was a human being. And it was the first time in almost six years anyone has talked to me like I was a human being. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, wow. melt. I was just, I was just melting that, that a civilian had talked to me like I was a human being. And they showed me where to sit. And I got over there. And then all the passengers get on. And after being around hurry, sweaty men for six years, you know, I could smell the women's perfume and all this stuff. But I was a bit institutionalized. One of the mistakes I made was I put my hand up and I asked a female member of the cabin crew if I could go to the toilet. <laughs> like, the toilet's right there. You don't need to ask. And I'm going red. I was paranoid that I stunk because I'd been in transportation for days. So I wanted, yeah. to, have a wanted to have a bird bath in prison. If you can't go out your cell because of all the lockdowns, you have a bird bath, which means you basically just scrub your armpits and scrub your ass and your cock. Yeah. So, so I go in there, have my bird bath, come back out, and um, they got some stupid movies on, and the flights go in, and um, we land at Gatwick. There's actually some footage of my YouTube channel of me in the car. In the car and meeting my parents at the airport. My mom's oh my crying. God. crying. We're having a hug. I'm all stubbled out. My face is just completely pale and shell-shocked. You can see I've been through some intense stuff. And my mom's crying. It's just so nice to give my mom a hug. Um, right away, they took me to the Indian restaurant. I ordered chicken tikka masala, my former favorite, but... I got the gag reflex because of the dead rats in the mystery meat slot that I think I told you about in part one. Yeah. I got the gag reflex. I couldn't eat it. And to this day, I've stayed vegetarian because of that. Can't I, I did some BBC interviews and um, a, a, a counsellor of a big reputation in London, he had an office out of Harley Street, which is very prestigious, contacted the BBC and said, look, he heard me tell the BBC the cockroach story and other stories I've told you. He said, look, um, I want to contact this guy and, and offer him a job speaking in the schools. Mm. And I, I was blessed that such good people came into my life to help me get my uh, public speaking career going and get my, my books going. 13 books now, just published Pablo Esco's story part three this week. That's my 13th book. So he offers me this job speaking in the schools. Um, I said, look, I'm a bit institutionalized. i got to get my head straight. I really appreciate this. But it'll give me a bit of time to settle down before I speak in a school. I think it was about a year and a half later before I took him up on that job situation. My mom said I was like a puppy dog falling around the house waiting for orders. Mm. And in the end, I, I moved down south into the house 
of one of my former XC suppliers, Mike Hot Wheels. He's one of the main characters in Party Time. He um, was supplying ecstasy out of LA to me before I started to go through Holland. He was a rave DJ as well out of Manchester, which is you know near where I was. I grew up. He's ten years older than me, so he's a bit of a mentor for me as I was coming up in the drug scene. And um, Mike got arrested in prison in the feds in America. He was. He ended up. Um, and he his case was running a few years before mine. So he got released before me, got this house in Guildford, and um, he's like just moving with me. And because that's near London, that's how I was able to make the necessary connections to get my career back on track. Now, what did you do to get your career back on track? So what did you do to make money? I mean, obviously, there's a big mental shift for you. You were, uh, like you said, you were full of testosterone. You were all about making making millions of dollars. You were yeah. doing whatever you were doing, coke, ecstasy, all that stuff. And, like, fast-paced lifestyle, just like the Wolf of Wall Street. <laughs> and there was obviously a huge transformation that happened to you inside prison. So now... What is your outlook when it comes to making money or rebuilding your wealth? So I went from that greed is good motto to just taking it as it came and trying to rebuild my life from scratch. And I do enjoy, my therapist said I enjoy building things up, but then I knocked them back down again when I get to <laughs> get to the top. So I knew I was not going to knock it down again. I was just going to make slow and steady progress in life. Now, it was in the maximum security jail. My writing got smuggled out back in 2003, 2004 mm. that, that caused the blog, John's Jail Journal, that attracted international media attention to Sheriff Joe Pyle's hellhole. And a literary agent did approach me about a book. And when I got out, that literary agent died. So then I'm, then I'm like contacting literary agents and publishers saying I've got the best story in the world and the best writer in the world. Didn't have a clue what I was doing. I was just burning bridges completely. So I won a short story contest that my mum had entered me into through a charity called Prisoners Abroad. And I'd forgotten I'd even entered it. It was about a shit slinger in Supermax. Oh, yeah. I remember that story. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was a whole different shit slinger story. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Um, that was made into a short story. Um, it was about a white guy who was in the Supermax and this big shit slinger. Um, it was about a battle between them two that they had going on for a long time and what happened. So I win a short story contest. I'm asked to read it at the Royal Festival Hall. And the people who have won this award through are called the Kersler Trust. So Prisoners Abroad entered it. Kersler Trust gave me the award. And these wonderful people some of the money from my books goes to them now to this day because they just do such great work helping prisoners rehabilitate through art that's what Kersler Trust do they're based out of London mm. they put me on their mentor scheme so I published author came and um, met me every month in the London Museum and stuff and within um, within a year of this lady working her magic I had a literary agent and that guy um, he helped me fine tune as well. And then he got me a deal with Random House, uh, who published originally published my life story as a trilogy before I, I, I got the rights back. Now I'm thinking, right, you know, 
the, the author, the term author, has associated with it the biggest misconception by the public of income. Authors are actually some of the lowest paid people in the world if you look at the average income for an author. People think of J.K. Rowling, mm. Stephen King. They think right. everybody, everybody who's an author is making that much money, but they're not. Most authors are broke. And I had to learn that the hard way. Then I'm thinking, I'm an author now. I'm going to make all this money. Yeah. So, so I'm selling £100,000 worth of books a year through ran, for Random House. We're doing that a lot. I'm doing book signings. And by book signing, I mean me and my mom are in the store all day long from 9 o'clock till 5 o'clock, handing out leaflets and putting people in headlocks, making them buy, buy the bloody book. They're not all lined up at a table because I'm so famous and I can just sit there and sign books and leave after an hour. Me and my mom, we just, oh, man, we went up and down the country doing that. Wow. I'm selling £100,000 worth of books a year. That's like $120,000. I got a check every six months from Random House. How much do you think that check was? Uh, $10,000. Two. $2,000. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So it took me a long time, man, to rebuild and to, to make an income decent enough to start investing in my own podcast and stuff like that. That's kind of how a lot of people have to start, though. I mean, when you start fresh in something like that, you kind of have to you got to start without no, you have you have no recollect. You, you don't know how anything works. You have no connections. You have no leverage. You just you're fresh out of prison. And that's how you me, learn. It took me 10 years to become a millionaire in the stock market. It took me 10 years for my initial drug purchases for me to be doing the millions in the ecstasy trafficking business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's took equally that long to become a bestseller on Amazon. Wow. Yeah. Is that how long it's been since you got out or since you published? Well, I, got, I got released in December, 2007. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So what I've done then is I've expanded because my platform now is such rather than just be writing about myself and talking about myself, I now interview other people who've got out of prison help them get their stories out, help them get book deals. My own publishing company now, Gadfly Press, is working with about 10 of my podcast guests. It's all true crime, getting their books out as well. Right. All those good people who helped me, I remember. And I'm trying to be one of those people now, giving other people a leg up, especially guys who've just got out of prison. Mm. What, how would you describe how, not necessarily reading, but writing has changed your life? So, um, writing has become my life. You know, I read over, someone said reading would improve my writing. I read over a thousand books. That became the lifeblood of my rehabilitation. And blogging in prison saved my sanity. Writing about the conditions helped me deal with the conditions. And then when the responses came in from the public, it was like the spirit of those people was right there with me in the cell. When you say blogging, what do you mean by that? Okay, so when I was in max security, I started to write everything down. In the beginning, it was about the cockroaches. Okay. And that's how my writing got discovered. Now, I couldn't just post what I couldn't just um, post what I wrote because the guards can open your mail. Mm. You know, we wanted to expose what was going on. Mm. But my aunt would visit me in max security. So I figured out a way for her to get those written notes out of the jail. 
And when I look back at those written notes now, they're all crinkled with sweat because I was sat in that cell sweating all over the paper with my little pencil sharpened on the door. <laughs> so what she did was um, she came and visited me. I couldn't hand what I'd written to her because in Mac security, she's behind a plexiglass screen. I'm in a cubicle. I've got one hand handcuffed to the table and another hand holding a telephone. Do you remember in the Silence of the Lambs when Hannibal Lecter first met Clarice Starling? I think so. And Hannibal comes down to that dungeon. I'm sorry, Clarice Starling, the FBI agent, comes down. Is it he dungeon. in that, like, he's in, like, a fish tank type thing, right? She comes down to the dungeon, and he's behind the plexiglass screen, and she's speaking right. to him. Yeah, it's a bit like that. So what I could do was a property release. And what that means is in my cell, I'm only allowed seven books. If I go over that, I've got to release it. My old mail, my old legal um, paperwork, I can release that to my aunt. Now, to do a property release, you've got to get a form called a tank order. You've got to beg a guard for that. You've got to fill it out, and then his superior's got to sign off on it. Mm-hmm. Then you go up to the property with your tank order doing the penguin shuffle because I'm in max security, so my hands are cuffed, my legs are cuffed, doing the penguin shuffle, holding onto my property with my property release. Yeah, I, I gave that to the visitation officer with what I'd written hidden in it. Now, the guards are trained to search for contraband, drugs, cash, syringes, so they don't notice stuff that I've got hidden in property that's, you know, just written down. Right. That stuff is on the guard's desk while I've got the visit with my aunt. So I'm looking over. If you've seen my Locked Up Abroad episode on National Geographic, yeah, um, it shows me and my aunt, you know, with the man, and I'm looking over the guard's desk. I'm sweating, thinking he's going to find it. And um, at the end of the visit, my aunt claims the property from the guard. She walks out of the Mad- maximum security Madison Street jail with it, goes home, types them up, emails them to my parents in wow. my town, Witness, near Liverpool and Manchester. My parents put them online as a blog, John's Jail Journal, not Sean, because I think we discussed in part one that the guards were murdering mentally ill prisoners. But did I tell you about that? They were doing what to mentally ill prisoners? Murdering them. No, you didn't. I don't think you did say that. Okay, then. I've got videos on my channel of guards murdering mentally ill prisoners, including war veterans. Now, the cases that came about back then, Brian Crenshaw was classified as a partially blind shoplifter, failed to produce his ID for the evening meal. Guards pulverized him, broke his neck, severe internal injuries. He went into a coma and died a month later. People can Google these names. Scott Norberg, mentally ill man. They bring him in. Guards start beating him and electrocuting him with tasers. A female guard tries to stop it. Stop beating him. His face has turned blue. They ignore her and they keep beating him. The prisoners start to yell. Why are you still beating him? He is already dead. And they were like a pack of animals. They couldn't, even though he was by now a corpse, right. they, could, they could not stop beating the corpse. Just like a pack of animals. 
Well, once, that's, once, that, once that triggered, they can't stop. So those cases were caught on camera and family members of the victims of the guards sued the jail and were awarded compensation. My, okay. question for you, my question for you, Danny, is what do you think the boss, Sheriff Joe Pyle, did to some of those guards that were found responsible in federal court for murdering those prisoners? I mean, I can't imagine. They, they probably got paid leave or something like that, or they got to retire early, or pay, they didn't... Pay, pay rises and promotions. Really? So they just got rewarded and they kept their jobs? Rewarded for murder, which is an incentive to kill. Arpaio always backs his guys up. He prides himself, America's toughest sheriff. Who gives a shit about prisoners? That's his attitude. Yeah. So my mom was aware of these lawsuits and these cases and these people that the guards had murdered. Yeah. Now, the blog idea came from my dad. This was when blogs were just starting. Right. And we, we, we became the first prison blog. And I think we were the first prison YouTube channel because it started in 2007. Um, my channel, and I think we put videos up in 2008. And um, my dad had read a book called The Baghdad Blogger by Salem Pax. And that's how my dad learned about blogging. Mm. And it was in the news, this guy, when the bombs were dropping on Iraq, he lived there. So he was describing what the day-to-day -day life was like. And this was making news in the UK. Wow. So my dad read this and he sent me even an article and he eventually sent me the guy's book. And I was very frustrated um, at the injustices that were being perpetrated, the human rights violations, not just on me, but on the prison population. I was outraged and I saw all the people profiteering from it. So as an educated person, I wanted to expose it, but I didn't have the tools. So when my dad proposed this blogging thing, I was all over it, but my mom was like putting the brakes on because mm -hmm. of the murders by the guards. She did not want us to do it. So then we came up with John, which is um, Irish for Sean anyway. And um, they figured they just changed your name that would protect you. And that's what it did. Yeah, that's how we proceeded. Okay. It, took, it took a while for the authorities to catch up with it. My blog now is, and all my books are classified as a threat to the security of the institution in Arizona, mm -hmm. and prisoners are prohibited from accessing them. So my aunts got smuggled the stuff out. Mm -hmm. I thought just my friends and um, you know some some few little people would read it. Yeah. But when I got moved over to Supermax because of more tricks by the prosecutor. Um, the BBC, the Guardian ran it, a major newspaper here. They had an American cockroach on the front of the section. And it, all the anecdotes I told you about the cockroaches. Yeah. That's what got my writing discovered. Oh, my goodness. And then, and then the BBC. That's fucking amazing. The BBC ran it. And it's just not stopped. The media has not stopped since, um, since then. And the interest has not stopped since then. I'm talking How? over 10 years ago. So you were writing, you were sitting, sitting down in your cell writing daily. Yeah. And I was just, writing letters just, to people. Getting just pen journaling. Pals. Yeah. People would read my blog, contact the blog administration, which was my parents. Mm. And then my parents, once they'd vetted them and found out, you know, they were good people, would give them my prison address and they would mm. write letters to me and send books to me. And it, mm. it, it got to the point where, um, there's good and bad in every profession. I'm going to give you a good guard story now. I was at a prison 
later on in the Arizona Department of Corrections and I was allowed seven books in my cell. Mm. And a redneck prison guard with the aviator glasses on, chewing tobacco, comes across the desert with a wheelbarrow full of books, a cart full of books. And there's like 100, 200 guys on the yard and all heads are turning because, you know, mail and books are gold. He gets to the bottom of my tier. I'm on the upper tier and he yells up. He's like, Atwood, get your ass down here. So I go down. He goes, how many books are you allowed in your cell? I said, seven. He goes, well, there's 50-something books in here. Everything over seven is now contraband and I can destroy them. But I know you're sharing them with the fellas. You're filling the library up. I'm going to turn my head and look the other way. And I yelled all my mates over and they came down. And we were like a, pack, a trail of ants across the desert, all holding these little stacks of books. <laughs> and when we got in my cell... It was like Christmas. We were sniffing the books. And two Tonys, he introduced me to some of the more literary authors. I was reading Steve, Stephen King when he came in my cell one day. He's like, that motherfucker's churning out books like McDonald's is churning out hamburgers. <laughs> you need to read some Tom Wolfe, some Norman Mailer, some John Updike. And they did become my um, favorite contemporary American authors, thanks to two Tonys' influence. So two Tonys in the cell on that day that was like Christmas sniffing you know tom wolf's latest book and people are, <laughs> people are running off back to the cells with the books yeah yeah so there are some good guards there's good and bad in every profession like i said um mm. and, it, and it just expanded from there but i've got all this written content you know years and years of written content and there became a point two or three years ago where that's all i was focused on but i started to realize young people just want videos and yeah. I went on. I went on True Geordie podcast. I think I had like I don't know two thousand to ten thousand subscribers on my YouTube channel. I went on True Geordie podcast, and um, like three years ago, right? Yeah, I told my stories like I've been telling you, and that just caused my YouTube channel to blow up. So you asked about my what I focus on in my life now, my profession. Yeah. What What I've done is transferred all of my written content over to video. Right. Plus, interviewed loads of new people and got their stories and, and put that out as a video as well. But now I'm reverse engineering that back into books. Okay, man, what you're doing is absolutely—it's so—it's so impressive what you what you've been able to do and the work ethic that you put into it. Like, like you just said today, you've probably done—you've already you made a live stream video, you did another interview. Now you're doing this. You're like, well, my my former crime partner, Wildman, calls me the robot. He said he calls you the robot. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, man, your work ethic is is super admirable, and and the content that you're creating, and and the amount of books that you're cranking out is is just it's amazing. It's well, it really is. It, a lot of it's thanks to the YouTube viewers, people watching this right now, even because they have suggested video ideas and guest ideas, and they've yeah. really they've really steered my channel to the point where it's got this momentum. Yeah, man, it's 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 a it's admirable. I, I I truly I truly love it. And those books, those two books on each side of your head, American yeah. Made, yeah. And what's the other one called? Clinton and the CIA conspiracies. Clinton Bush and CIA conspiracies from the boys on the tracks of Jeffrey Epstein. Now, right today is this morning. Who was arrested by the FBI? Oh my goodness, we never thought it would happen. Just never. Like it <laughs> Prince Andrew's partner in crime? 
Ghislaine Maxwell. Also, the Madame, you call her a Madame to Jeffrey Epstein. Not, His... just, the, not just the chief procurer and co conspirator, but also someone who participated in assaulting the kids. Now, what does this mean for her to be arrested by the FBI today? It's huge because if it's not getting swept under the carpet and it's a conspiracy case like this, I looked at the indictment today. I did a one-hour video whereby I read the indictment out on YouTube on a live stream. And she has got six charges. The last two are perjury, which aren't that significant. But the first four are hugely significant. Trafficking kids for sexual abuse and participating in the abuse. She's facing multiple life sentences. So mm. the only way she's going to get out of this situation now is if she turns snitch and coughs up some big names. So how long before she gets suicided? That's it. She's in, She presents <laughs> the exact same risk now to the elites who suicided exact. Epstein that Epstein presented. But if she but, gets whacked, that is just too obvious. Well, they don't right? care because it ends there, doesn't it? Oh, my it God. It ends there. If she goes and names Bill Clinton and Prince Andrew in a court trial, government agencies have to take action if she says they are having sex with kids. It can't get to that. It's got to be stopped. Jesus Christ, this shit gives me chills, man. It is so fucking scary. It's great because the Epstein case, all of a sudden, there was no news for days. And then, bam, they grab her, the chief procurer. Now, she's close with the CIA, right? She knows people in the CIA, right? She's got connections. So do you think she knew this was coming? If you go back to the history of Robert Maxwell, um, he had connections of all the intelligence agencies. He was a far bigger player than than, uh, Epstein or or, uh, Ghislaine. Mm. But once you become a liability, they take you out. Right. He, he was off the Canary Islands on his yacht, the Lady Ghislaine, thinking that he was some money was forthcoming from a certain country and an intelligence agency. And they had a hit squad in dinghies below the radar. He's up on deck. They come up. They were planning it. Bam, get him in the neck with a syringe with a poison that's untraceable. That's how they took him out. And it's still debated to this day how he died. But in the assassination of Robert Maxwell, and I have interviewed Uri Ben Menashe, who's prominent in that, it looks like that's what went down. So when these people, even though they've got all these connections in the world, and Maxwell, he could sit down with the president of Russia, president of Israel, president of America, with MI5, the CIA, MI6, the Mossad, you name it. Right. When these people become a liability... They t- they've got to go. So she, she can have all the connections in the world, but once you become that liability, you've got to go. I know you watched the Epstein documentary on Netflix, Filthy Rich. Oh, yeah. What was your What were your thoughts on that overall? Man, I was in tears watching the victims. Yeah, because you know you you interviewed a lot of those women. I've right? interviewed Maria Farmer, and I've had interactions with others online. And just to hear the judge say that, you know, they were human beings and they were victims. They weren't child prostitutes and criminalized, which is what Dershowitz and his crew tried to do to them. And Acosta, absolutely disgusting people. Um, Just to see that the happiness in them to be acknowledged as human beings. Um, 
And today, this must be a huge day for them. I've been watching all day on Twitter to see if Maria or Virginia have tweeted yet. Mm -hmm. They must be inundated right now. This is a a result of their bravery, what has happened, that they've not dropped this case and they've kept going no matter what. You know, Mm -hmm. Maria Farmer had private detectives outside of her house shining lights in in the middle of the night, threatening her life. Um, One of the bodyguards at Wexner property was, you know, psyching himself up to kill her. And she managed to get out of that situation. The things that these women went through is proper horror movie stuff. So, yeah. you know, I, I urge people all over the world to go on Twitter and support Virginia and, and Maria Farmer and, and send them a tweet and follow them. I wanted to touch a little bit on your book about Pablo Escobar and George Bush. George Sr., right? Yeah, of course, yeah. So who was Barry Seal? Okay, so my book, American Made, is about the CIA cocaine flying pilot, Barry Seal. There was Mm -hmm. also a movie starring Tom Cruise, which was a complete whitewash. It did show some things as they allow more to be shown, but a whitewash about the more hardcore stuff. So the subtitle is Who Killed Barry Seal, Mm -hmm. George H.W. Bush, or Pablo Escobar. Okay, so who killed him? Was Was it Pablo or was it George Bush? All right, so you've got Barry Seal flying in cocaine to Arkansas. You've Mm -hmm. got this operation is run by George H.W. Bush and Oliver North with full national security CIA protection. Mm -hmm. The state of Arkansas is run by then Governor Bill Clinton, so he's providing the police, state police, to protect it. And it all went wrong when two kids... um, were found dead on railroad tracks. And the first chapter, there's, there's the stories of four people interweave throughout this book. Okay. And Linda Ives is the mum of Kevin Ives, who was one of the boys on the tracks. Okay. Now, evil Bill Clinton had a corrupt medical examiner who basically would give him whatever verdict, me- method of death um, he required. So the method of death on these two boys, it was ruled that they'd got so high on weed, they'd gone into a psychedelic trance and lay down side by side on the railroad tracks and a train had run over them. Well, actually, they'd seen the drug drop and the bodyguards had seen the kids and the kids were snuffed out. That's what really happened. And Linda Eyes has been trying to get justice from Bill Clinton to this day and he's, he won't even acknowledge her. And how do you how do you know this? Like, how can you confidently say this? Because Charlene Wilson was there at the scene, and Dan Lasseter, she was a, a drug addicted lady who um, was being used by these players. Um, Dan Lasseter was a guy who was pretending to be Doctor Lasseter. Um, picking up medical organs. Terry Reid wrote a book called Compromised. He was working with Barry Seal. He was um, he didn't know about the coke until later when he got moved to Mexico after Barry Seal died. But Terry Reid um, and other pilots have all come out and said that they were bringing the coke in. And Terry Reid um, has got a book called Compromised. It's huge. And this is a CIA guy. And he details, he details the whole thing. So it's not from conspiracy theorists. All my information is from 
people who were arrested, people who were cops protecting the Clintons, and people who were working for the CIA. And all these people's stories correlate with each other. Absolutely, because it's the truth. I believe it 100%. And even, wow. the, even the public. You know, 10, 20 years ago, if you told the public that, that the U.S. federal government was waging a war on drugs while bringing the cocaine in that spawned the crack um, epidemic, you were called a conspiracy theorist. Oh, 100%. But now everybody accepts that the war in Nicaragua had to be financed, was being financed by cocaine. And George H.W. Bush and Oliver North were running that. People fully accept that now. Okay, so Barry Seal was flying in cocaine. Yeah. To where? To Arkansas and weapons back down to Nicaragua. While all this, while Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas. Yeah, and Bill Clinton was hooked on cocaine himself. His brother Roger was hooked on coke and got arrested in a cocaine deal. And the undercover cop recorded him saying some of this is for bill he's got a nose like a vacuum cleaner there's a there's a video recording of roger clinton after he's been arrested saying a bunch of crazy expletives and yeah all, about all, bill. all racial words and expletives yeah that's what those guys were like they get on tv and say they're fighting the war on drugs and behind the scenes they are running the drugs and they're locking up all the lowest level users to make profits off it. This is how psychopathic and evil these people are. Clinton ended up hospitalized because of nasal damage from all the coke he was doing. Mm-hmm. Hillary, Hillary went down the hospital, threatened all the staff. Deviated said, septum, right? Yeah, and said to all the staff, any of this comes out, you, you are ruined. Your careers are over. I will wipe the floor with you. All the women that Clinton was having sex with, some consensual, some not. Lawsuits were settled. Hillary found out where all those women were, and they were stalked. Pets were murdered, and they were threatened never ever to say a single thing. Not because she was jealous; she was just supporting his rise to power because um, their their rise to power was together. It really was like the fucking House of Cards. <laughs> yeah, there's a book called Partners in Power, which details it all, and that again is testimonies from Arkansas State Police protecting the Clintons prosecutors who were trying to prosecute drug deals who ended up death threatened all kinds of crazy stuff went on dan um the, the prosecutor that that pretended to help linda ives that was coming in as the savior to get her justice was later sent to prison for running a drug ring wow I think his name was Dan Harmon. I'm getting confused. There's two Dans in my book. There's Dan Harmon and there's Dan Lasseter. One was the finance guy who was laundering the cocaine money for Clinton. Okay. And contributing to him. And if you wanted to launder your money, uh, if you wanted to be part of that, um, they were doing loans through Arkansas Development Finance Authority. This is the scam they set up. According to Larry Nichols, who worked for them, another insider, Hundred million a month was getting laundered through Adfa, and to get a loan from Adfa that you never had to repay back, you had to submit your application with a check for five or ten grand or whatever to Rose Law Firm, where Hillary Hillary Clinton was at. Wow, man! Don't forget, Hillary Clinton was a person who got a pedophile off. It done so much damage to his victim, and and she was cackling about it afterwards when she now, was a lawyer. Weren't there people who had? 
there was autopsy reports of people with like multiple shotgun wounds to their chest. Oh god, that was yeah. labeled a suicide. Yeah, the medical examiner who said the guy, the boys had lay side by side on the tracks. There was people being decapitated and things, and they said it was stomach ulcers. <laughs> people with hundreds of stab wounds. And he said, just, you know, whatever. <laughs> and there it's, was a term, there was a term developed for this kind of, uh, this type of suit. Arkansas. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. An Arkansas suicide, a.k.a. Yeah. a Clinton murder. All the way from the boys on the tracks to Jeffrey Epstein. Okay, now let's go back to this guy, Barry Seal. Yeah. So he was the he was at, literally flying this cocaine back to I the think, U.S. I never answered your question. Who killed him? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So Barry Seal is flying the cocaine in, and the weapons out to Nicaragua. He's doing all kinds of shady transactions on the side. And he gets in trouble with the DEA. So what you're seeing here is a pattern, whether it's Epstein, whether it's Ghislaine Maxwell, whether it's Robert Maxwell, of people working with the intelligence agency, Mm -hmm. but getting in so much trouble, they cross a line whereby they become a liability. That's exactly what happens with Barry Seal. He gets in trouble with the DEA. He knows all this stuff about the cocaine shipments. Too much information. He's a liability. Mm. As he gets in more trouble with the DA, he starts sweating George H.W. Bush to help him to get out of the situation. George H.W. Bush does not help him. What happens is a federal judge on his case with the DEA orders Barry Seal that he's no longer able to carry a gun, orders Barry Seal that he's no longer able to have armed bodyguards, orders Barry Seal to live in a halfway house with a fixed address. Now, Barry Seal, during his work for the DEA to try and get himself out of trouble, had snitched on Escobar, and Escobar had a contract out on him. But they couldn't catch him. Barry Seal said, I could see a Colombian a mile away in Louisiana. Um, So the federal government knew Bush knew, take away his guns, take away his armed bodyguards, put him at a fixed address. The Medellin cartel are going to wipe him out like that. And that's exactly what happened. So who killed him? Who killed him? Both. Both. Wow. Bush took away his protection and made him vulnerable. And the hitmen came in. And oddly enough, I just interviewed um, a couple of days ago. I think you got you interviewed him as well, I think. Um, yeah, Jorge Valdez. Yeah, yeah. And he talks about this because he met one of the shooters, didn't he, of Barry Seal? He met the hitman. In Did prison. he really? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my he gosh. Yeah, yeah. And um, that's what I believe went down. That's what Barry Seal's son believes went down. He gave me a quote for the book. He said, it's, you know, it's the only one who's, who's put the truth out there. And um, the other question. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What I forgot. Pablo. Barry, Barry Seal was found dead. And there was a phone number on him. And that was the, the, the line. The phone number for George H.W. Bush was found on him when he was. When he died. What? Yeah. 
And of course, the feds come in and just take all the evidence right away. Yeah. And how are you able to uncover this? Because it's just been thoroughly documented by everybody involved in the case. Terry Reid, credit to him, his book compromised. Now, okay. Terry Reid Terry Reed was a straight shooter. Mm-hmm. And Barry knew he was a straight shooter. And he did not tell him that there was cocaine coming back. He just told him, you know, patriotism, communism, fighting this war. Nicaragua, the guy with the weapons. Terry Reid had no idea. Now, Barry Seal's dream was to have a CIA-sponsored airline like Southern Air Transport, but do it over Mexico. Mm. And the CIA proceeded to set that up with Terry Reid. But when Terry Reid learned about the drug shipments, he blew the whistle, and then he, he, he had to go on the run. They, they, they criminalized him. They tried to kill him. And it's all detailed in his book, Compromised. I urge people to go and read it. And they, wow. these are insiders. These are insiders. They're not conspiracy theorists. Just just, just putting right. this out there. Yeah. Right. So, all right. So, Escobar then. Um, Colombia has a cartel boss in each area. So, you've got, you know, Rodriguez Gacha is the boss of, of the Bogota region. You've got the Arjuela brothers, Gilberto and Miguel, the Cali cartel, bosses of Cali. Mm-hmm. You've got Pablo, the boss of Medellin. You've got the Castaño brothers, um, who, were instrument, who were some of Pablo's guys who were instrumental in his death. You've got all these big traffickers across the country. That's the point that I'm saying. The, king, the kingpins. The kingpins, yeah. The U.S. Um, come along and... Um, you know, because of drug laws, um, cocaine's going for what sixty grand a kilo in the nineteen seventies, mm-hmm. coming down and coming down slowly into the eighties. Pablo can source coca paste for sixty dollars a kilo out of Peru and Bolivia in the beginning. So, because of drug laws, the profit margin is astronomical, and doesn't matter who gets arrested, the cocaine will always flow. Now, when there's something so profitable in the world as drugs, if you're the most powerful country in the world. You're going to want to lock that down. Mm. And that's that's what the CIA did. They said, look, here's our justification. If the communists are running this and they arm themselves with this drug money, they're going to be knocking on America's door. It's domino theory. You know, all these countries in South, Central and South America fall. Mexico falls. Next thing, they're going to be knocking on our door. So we've got to control this situation. But at the same time, while they're profiting from it, they're fighting a war. The U.S. federal government is fighting a war on drugs. So the CIA has got the highest level of security, power, and clearance. They're in charge of running the drugs. The DEA, another arm of the U.S. federal government, is mm-hmm. fighting the war on drugs. But by fighting the war on drugs, you choose who you can arrest and you choose who you can allow to deal it's the ultimate way to control the drugs market. And George H.W. Bush at a dinner was bragging, when asked about this, was bragging. It's beyond the public conception that people running the drugs, people fighting the war on drugs, could be running the drugs. It's so beyond the public's... That's how he got away with it. He said it's because it's so beyond what the public's minds will accept. The arrogance of these fucking psychopaths. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So, if you're fighting the war on drugs, what do you need? A boogeyman. A Pablo, Escobar, Pablo Escobar was the boogeyman. 
And all, all of the figures, yeah, the Median cartel were doing a lot. But all the figures that the US prosecutors say are em- embellished and exaggerated. Mm. And, you know, was, was it Barron said he was the richest guy in the world all those years in a row? Well, Juan Pablo Escobar said Barron's never came out and audited our finances. You know, how do they make these things up? They make them up at the clear blue sky. The term, right. Medellin, the term the Medellin cartel was made up by U.S. federal prosecutors. Right. The more power, make these prosecutions more easily and give them longer sentences. It's all a construct of the war on drugs. So you arrest Pablo. Such a victory. We're going to pose now with kilos of cocaine. That's George H. posing with kilos of cocaine. Going to get more votes. All about the votes. Mm-hmm. Cali, cart- Cali cartel takeover. It almost seems kind of counterintuitive for them to kill Pablo, though, right? Because Pablo was was fueling this whole thing. Why, why would they kill him? Well, they didn't kill him. He killed himself. But they set things in motion that killed him with his, with his enemies. His own, it was his own men that hunted him down in the end. The Castaño okay. brothers were in charge of the operation. They were, okay. the head, they were the head of the death squad, Los Pepes. And Don Burner was the lieutenant who was on the ground who went into the house with his brother Seed. There were some cops there, but they, they always sent Los Pepes in the death squad first. And then they would have to disappear because they were an illegal death squad and the police would mm. take the credit. Police were shitting themselves about Pablo. But they were using technology with, you know, to track him down with the authorities and working with the authorities. Right, right. So they, they go in. The Castaño brothers have announced that they're going to capture Pablo alive. They're going to have his arms and legs surgically removed. And they're going to keep him alive. And they're going to throw the stumps on Medellin. The king of Medellin is now, you know, this, this stump. And that would guarantee their legend. They were going to chop his kids up and send them to him in a sack. Now, Pablo died because of the love of his family. He stayed on the phone for too long. He caused the end to happen. And he always said to his men, he's got his famous six-hour pistol. He's going to shoot off so many bullets, and then he's going to put one in his head. Look at how, how you know, the line that bullet went through, almost one ear, almost perfect line through one ear into the other ear. Slightly out of place, but he'd been shot three times. I think it was three times. He'd been shot in the, in the knee. Um, he'd been shot in the shoulder. And one of the bullets had ended up lodged between his, his teeth. It was over for him. Mm-hmm. And he knew that he had to, he had to go, get out of the way to save his family. He sacrificed himself for the love of his family. And that's what's interesting about him is these contradictions. This guy who authorized genital electrocution and torture, one of the tortures they had was they would put um, rags with petrol into your mouth, with you know gas that runs cars into your mouth until your eyeballs mm. popped out. Mm. They would they wouldn't just kill you, they would kill whole generations of your family. Yeah, his love for his family was so strong, you know, he died for his family. Now he was made the boogeyman because he went to war with the government instead of just kicking back. There yeah. was people according to Jorge Val, um, George Valdez, there was people bigger than him who kicked back and stayed out of the headlines. And in the nineteen right. eight, in the 1980s, when Pablo was making all this news war with the government, you know, Felix Gallardo was rising up as the Mexican cartel boss without making any news headlines whatsoever. That was a far shrewder strategy. Yeah. When, when they took the Colombians down, the, you know, the Mexicans took over because it doesn't matter which country you take down, another country is going to pick you up because the profit margin is so high because of drug laws. But the feds need a, a, a boogeyman. So, you know, El Ch- we just had El Chapo. Yeah. Who's it going to be next? Have you read, have you read the book of Pablo's brother? I've read all the books on Pablo. 
Plus, I've got all of the books that have been written about Pablo in Spanish translated into English because I've just written the longest book ever about Pablo, four book series, over a thousand pages called Pablo Escobar's Story, which completely transformed, getting all these translations completely transformed my understanding of what happened. And you're releasing this when? It's already released. I just released part three this week. This week? Yeah. Oh, so it's, part, a, it's a series. Okay. So you just part, released part three. Yeah, I just released part three. So part four is the only one remaining now. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. The the first my first introduction to that whole world was when I read the accountant story uh, yeah. from, from his brother. What did you see? Did you when you read that? I mean, I felt like the perspective of that book was kind of unique to everything else because he was the only one living. Right. That was that close to him. Yeah. And that's what took me on the scent to get closer to the truth, because all the people living close to him or working for him, his wife, his mistress, Virginia Vallejo, his main hitman, Popeye, all those people had written books that were only in Spanish back then. Mm. And the guys that were there when he died in charge of the operation, Carlos Castaño wrote My Confession, Don Berner wrote Killing the Boss, all in Spanish, still not in English. All the truth is in the Spanish-speaking world. Now, I learned this because I wrote a book called Pablo Escobar Beyond Narcos. I did a talk in London, and a Colombian woman came up to me at the end and said, there's far more that you don't know in the Spanish-speaking world. Everything written in the English-speaking world was incentivized and through the lens of certain agendas, such as the DEA. You know, the American heroes go in and kick the bad guys' ass. That's what Narcos has portrayed. It's the DEA perspective. Right. There, was not, there was an opportunity for Juan Pablo to give his input to Narcos, and the DEA threatened to pull out. So there's an agenda here. It's the war on drugs. The DEA are the good guys. The U.S. federal government is, the, you know, holier than thou, protecting kids from evil drug dealers, while the CIA is bringing the drugs in. Wow, man. Jeez. That agenda must be protected at all costs to keep the war on drugs going, but it's falling down. All this violence we're seeing now, the social unrest, I think the war on drugs is tearing the fabric of society apart because the profit margin, the, the amount of drugs sold every year illegally gets bigger. They estimate half a trillion to a trillion dollars. And it's the biggest opportunity in the history of the world for criminal organizations, including intelligence agencies, to make the most profits ever out of anything. So they're all competing. And that's what's causing all this violence in Mexico and all the knife crime in London. Mm. What the media isn't telling you, the majority of it is, is drug gangs competing and criminals competing for the black market profits created by drug laws. Wow. Which is all fueled by prisons. Yeah, yeah. But look, Danny, it's um, time for yeah, me. Yeah, it's just two hours. I'm sorry. I know. Time, we gotta for, go. me, time for me to go and do my jog while it's still light. I'm yeah, you, I'm, you got three more. You got three more interviews before you're allowed to go to bed. <laughs> cool, man. Thank you so much, and uh, and tell everyone all about your where to get your new books and about your new content. Yeah. Okay. So if you would be kind enough to put the links in the description box below the video. Yep. My books are available worldwide on Amazon. I'll send you a book, a link over to my library on my website. You know, I'm really appreciate your followers. Uh, my story resonating with them so powerfully. And it being one of the most watched videos on your channel, getting over a million views. Huge thank you to all the people who've um, put positive comments. I have been reading them down there. 
And if you do um, put the link into my channel as well, Absolutely. really, really appreciate you guys clicking over and subscribing and watching some of my content. And like I said, um, every week, you know, I'm interviewing someone with a hard hitting prison story or an ex cop story, ex gangsters, uh, mafia people. And um, I think uh, some of the content will, will, will really resonate with your people. And please don't forget to go over and support Virginia and Maria Farmer and, and send them a message of love and respect and support on a day uh, the, as important as this when, when Ghislaine Maxwell gets taken down. Well, thank you so much, Sean. Uh, you know, I really appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and share your stories with, you know, with the subscribers on my channel as well. And uh, you're very kind and you're very interesting and I appreciate you. <laughs> All right. I appreciate your interest, Danny. <laughs> and, and let's, let's keep this going. Absolutely, man.